0: This morning's scripture reading comes from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. Let's read it together. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! So we're coming into the last three weeks of our series on the book of Revelation um, by looking at the last two chapters. But these aren't just the last two chapters of Revelation. They're also the last two chapters of the whole Bible, which is really important because they form a bookend with the first two chapters, which are Genesis 1 and 2. That is, uh, these bookends give meaning to everything that comes in between them. So these last two chapters, are. Uh, there's a richness and a significance. They are, they are as crucial as anything we will read in the Bible because they show us where the whole story of the cosmos is headed. So here's why this is so important. You know, it's easy for us to think of the book of Revelation as this fantastical book that's only concerned with the future, but is therefore meaningless for us today. But did you know that Revelation was one of the most popular books for the very first Christians living in the Roman Empire during the first century? It gave them something they needed. These were people who were facing unimaginable suffering and persecution. They were literally fed to lions. They were crucified in vast numbers all along the road uh, leading out of the city of Rome so that people leaving the city could see them while they died. They had holes drilled in their skulls and molten metal poured inside while they were still alive. They faced incredible suffering. And pain, and yet they had something that enabled them not just to endure these things, but to sing, to praise God, to rejoice, even in the midst of their suffering and dying. What gave them the ability to do that? Because whatever it is, you and I could sure use something like that. As I talk to people, as I listen to people, uh, you know, we are living in incredibly difficult times right now. We are being pressed hard right now. Maybe not as hard as those first Christians were, but as we live in this world right now, people are exhausted, they're discouraged, they're anxious, they're afraid, they're angry, they're, um, they're exhausted, they're depressed. We need something to help us get through. We need exactly what those first Christians had. What is it? Well, Revelation 21 and 22 show us So we're actually going to take the next three weeks to look at this because it's that important. And this morning, we're going to see three things in these first seven verses that are going to help us make our way through the suffering and pain of this life, not just by enduring it, but finding something that helps us to sing. What is it? Let's see three things. There is a surprising renewal, there's a perplexing tension, but there's also an exquisite resolution. A surprising renewal, a perplexing tension and an exquisite renewal, okay? First, there's a surprising renewal here. Throughout history, most every religion has always taught that there is a basic division between heaven and earth, between spiritual reality and between material reality, and that therefore salvation or nirvana or divine consciousness or moksha, or liberation, or whatever you want to call it, has always meant escaping earth, escaping material reality, and being liberated into a purely spiritual reality. Every religion throughout history has always taught that, every religion that is, except for the Bible. Because in verse 1 here, it says, then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, a new heavens and and a new earth. Now, this is crucial for us. Remember what we just said. Revelation 21 and 22, they form bookends with the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1 verse 1, it says, in the beginning God created what? The heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth. Now, heavens and earth is a figure of speech that's, um, I'm going to lay a literary term on you right now. It's called a merism. M-E-R ISM, merism. A merism is a figure of speech by which we refer to something by naming its parts. So for instance, if you were to say, I searched high and low, that's a way of saying, I searched everywhere. Or if you were to say, ha, I fell for that one, hook, line, and sinker, that's a way of saying, I fell for it completely. A merism, when the Bible says heavens and earth, that's a way of referring to the whole universe. It's a way of talking about all of creation, That means that from the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth to be one perfect, seamless, beautiful whole. And yet, in Genesis 3, we find out that because of human rebellion, because of of our pride and our self-centeredness, sin entered the world. And as a result, the whole fabric of creation was ripped apart, um, was ripped in two. Heaven and earth are now divided, although it was never supposed to be that way in the very beginning. Have you ever wondered why it is we experience this world as a place where everything's falling apart, where things are not the way they're supposed to be? I mean, think about it. If there is no God, and this world is all there is, then, by definition, this world is already exactly the way it's supposed to be, and yet we know it's not. Why? The Bible explains it. So, throughout the rest of the biblical storyline, God is is constantly saying, yeah, the world is broken, and the humans are the ones who broke it, but I created the world. I love the world, and I'm committed to renewing the world. I'm going to fix the world. That that is his vision throughout the whole Bible. That means that one of the first and most important things we see in this passage is that um, the Bible, and as far as I've been able to discover only the Bible, it's the only place that tells us that the ultimate goal of history, the ultimate climax for the whole cosmos is not a vision of God destroying the earth and carrying us away to heaven. It's a vision of God renewing the earth by reuniting it with heaven by reuniting it with heaven. That means that God is not ditching the earth, he's healing it, he's renewing it. But it's a surprising renewal because this is basically the opposite of how everybody has ever thought about this um, for as long as we can remember. So for instance, uh, traditional, oftentimes especially very fundamentalist religions, will say that one day God is going to destroy the earth and that our only hope is to escape earth and be carried away into heaven. But you know that um, Eastern spiritualities like Buddhism or New Age spirituality say something very similar also. They say that material reality is an illusion, um, and that therefore the goal is to escape material reality and to be liberated into purely spiritual reality, which means if you think about it, you realize even secular atheism basically um, believes something very similar, because it says, you know, look, the world is doomed. The universe is doomed. The second law of thermodynamics says that everything is falling apart. That means the end of the universe is, is, is the universe one day just limping pitifully into the cold oblivion of entropy. So that means that scientists like Stephen Hawking or technological gurus like Elon Musk have said, look, humanity's only hope is to escape Earth because the Earth is doomed. We have to escape the world and colonize other planets because the world is doomed. Friends, this is one of the, the most long standing eternal mindsets uh, that human beings have always had. So, for instance, have you ever noticed how many TV shows are all about parallel worlds or alternate realities, two universes? Um, And that one of the universes, one of the worlds is always threatening the other world. Stranger Things would be a a recent example of this. A little um, bit older than this, there's a TV show that was called Fringe. Um, J.J. Abrams was one of the creators of that show. The basic premise of the show is that there are two universes and a doorway opens up. And the challenge is to close the doorway um, so that our universe is not destroyed. At one point in the show, there's a pivotal conversation between two of the main characters, and um, the, the one character is explaining to the other um, about how this scientist named Dr. Bell, how he discovered the doorway between the two universes and the consequences of what would happen if they didn't close the doorway. So as she's explaining, she takes two snow globes, you know those things that you shake up and and they snow? Two snow globes and there's a little city inside each one of the snow globes and she holds them on a table in front of her, apart from each other. And she says, when Dr. Bell discovered the existence of the other side, the thing he dreaded most was the inevitable collision if they ever came into contact with one another. The Pauli Exclusion Principle states that no two objects can occupy the same space at the same time. Dr. Bell was afraid that if the doorway between the two universes was not closed that the inevitable conclusion and then she rams those two snow globes together and they explode and she says only one world would survive. It's what he called the last great storm. Friends, that's the way we typically view heaven and earth. There are two parallel worlds, alternate universes that can't possibly exist together in the same place at the same time. But the biblical vision of the end of history, the climax of the whole cosmos, is not God destroying the earth and carrying us away to heaven. It's God renewing the earth by reuniting it with heaven. It's a surprising renewal. And that leads to the second thing we see here, which is there's a perplexing tension here. Remember, I said that this letter is addressed to Christians. Uh, Specifically, it was addressed to the very first Christians. Now, how does it describe them? In verse uh, 8, it says that they are those who conquer. It describes Christians as conquerors. Now, what that means is that through the power of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, new creation life, that the new creation of God has come into the lives of Christians. So, for instance, in 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul says, and we say this together every week during our time of confession, that uh, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. In other words, when you turn from sin and trust in Jesus, the, the, the same power that one day is going to reunite heaven and earth, that power comes into your life and begins to renew you. We're a new creation. But that's not the only way this passage describes what it means to be a Christian. In verse 4, it describes what it's like living in this world. It says, this world is a place of tears, death, mourning, crying, and pain. And then in verse 6, it goes on to say that Christians are those who thirst. God talks to the to the one who thirsts. In other words, Christians aren't just conquerors, Christians are also thirsty. That means that in a world of tears, death, mourning, crying, and pain, we continue to thirst for the healing and the renewal that we long for. Now, by definition, to thirst for something means that you are not experiencing it, at least not experiencing it fully. Do you see the problem here? To be a Christian, living in this world means that you're both a conqueror and you're thirsty. We're thirsty conquerors. That means that uh, being a Christian in this world is to live in the midst of a perplexing tension. What What is a tension? Uh, one of the best illustrations I know is a tug of war. Did you ever play tug of war when you were a kid? You're on one side of a rope and, and, and you're pulling as hard as you can against the other side. You're pulling and grunting and groaning and heaving and sweating. It's really hard to be on one side of the rope pulling as hard as you can against the other side. But you know what's even harder? being the rope. To be a Christian in this world is, is like being a rope that's being pulled on as, as hard as it can, pulling you in two different directions. It, it feels like you're coming apart. That is a tension. So to be a Christian living in this world is to live in the midst of, of a perplexing tension. That means we always are saying things like, I'm exhausted and I don't see any end in sight. Tension. Or to say, um, I haven't worked in months and I don't even know how I'm going to pay my rent. Tension. Or to say, I'm lonely. and in, in fact, I haven't been hugged by another human being in months. Tension. It, it's to say things like, my relationships are a mess, my, my marriage is falling apart, or I'm sick and I don't see any end in sight, or I'm struggling with an addiction, or with a sin, or with depression, or whatever it might be, and I, I don't know how to get out of it. Tension. Friends, theologians have a way of talking about this tension for the Christian. They call it the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. Here's what this means. Um, It means that through the power of Christ's physical resurrection, the, the new creation, new creating power of God has already broken into this world. And then it calls Christians the first fruits Of that new creation. Now first fruits is a farming term. It means the first crops that come up out of the ground during a harvest. Uh, But it's just a little bit. It's not the whole harvest. So that means that a first fruits is both a sample of what the rest is going to look like, but also a promise of more to come. But it's just a little bit. It's just the first fruits. It's just the beginning. New creation power has already broken into this world, but It is not fully completed yet. It's not yet fully completed. That means that to be a Christian means to live in the midst of a tension between the already and the not yet. We're conquerors, but we're thirsty. We're redeemed, but we're wretched. We're full of the power of the Holy Spirit, but but we're struggling. It's it's like being a rope and you're being pulled in two different directions. It feels like you're coming apart. Tension. And you know, it's also possible you don't have to be a Christian to experience this tension. If you're experiencing Uh, exploring faith and spirituality. Uh, Maybe you're exploring what it means to follow Jesus. You're not yet a Christian. You know, you experience something of this tension too, because we all experience the tension between hoping for a better world, and yet the daily lived reality of of life in this broken world. We all experience this tension of feeling like we're being pulled in two different directions. Friends, here's what this means for us today. Among many things, the main thing I want to press um, press on us this morning is this. This means that God calls the church to be a place where it's safe to struggle. That the church, of all the places in the world, should be the one place where it's most safe to be a mess. Where it's most safe to suffer and, and to struggle. Where, where you can ask the really hard, difficult questions, but where you can especially be honest and real about the hardest, most difficult realities in your life. And I mean the really difficult realities. Because it's easy for us to feel like every day we walk out of our front door, we got to put on a big smile, clean ourselves up, put our best foot forward, don't ever let anybody see you sweat, certainly don't ever let anybody see you struggle. Don't let them see the most difficult realities that are going on in your life. But friends, the Bible is far more realistic than that. In fact, the God of the Gospel is infinitely more gracious than that. And please understand, this does not mean that we, or especially God, turns a blind eye to evil and injustice. A couple of weeks ago, we spent the whole sermon talking about this. Part of God's master plan for healing and renewing the world is also uh, bringing perfect justice to the world. So that doesn't mean that just because we struggle and that God is gracious about that, it doesn't mean that God won't hold us accountable. Um, for the evil in our lives, and it certainly doesn't mean that we shouldn't hold each other accountable. It does mean that in the midst of our struggle, that that our yearning for healing and renewal, that healing and renewal we long for, doesn't come into our lives by our hard work or effort. It means that it comes into our lives by grace. Because if you look, once again, at verse 6, when it talks about to the one who is thirsty, it says, to the one who is thirsty, I will give to drink from the water of life, the spring of the water of life. What does he say? Without payment. Without payment. That means that the healing and renewal you long for is available to you, but it's without payment. You know, traditional religion says that, oh, healing and renewal is available for you, but you've got to work for it. You've got to be a good person, live a good life, try really hard, obey all the rules, and if you live a good enough life, then you will achieve salvation. But the gospel is the exact opposite of that, because the gospel, as Tim Keller puts it so wonderfully, says that, um, that if salvation is not achieved. Salvation is received by grace. It's without payment. Now, here's the big question. How does this healing and renewal, how does this gracious salvation come into our life? Well, that's our last point. We've seen this surprising renewal. We've seen a perplexing tension. But lastly, we see here an exquisite resolution. If you look once again in verse six, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. God is saying, I am the A to Z, the beginning and the end. Now, when God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, remember from our first point, you already know what this is. It's a merism. In other words, God is saying, I am sovereign over all of creation, sovereign over all history, over all human experience. I, I, I embrace the totality of all of that within myself. I don't just oversee it. I embrace all of that within myself. God embraces all of it. So so when God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, you realize what God is saying is, is, I embrace the totality of all of your suffering, the totality of your experience, the totality of your struggle. I embrace all of that, both your conquering and your thirst. I embrace the totality of that in myself. So that, as one scholar I read puts it, when God says, I am the beginning and the end, he's saying that the beginning and the end is not an event, it's a person that God embraces the totality of our suffering, of both our conquering and our thirst. And, in fact, he says, I've already done it for you. How? Friends, on the cross, Jesus Christ cried out, I thirst. He said, I thirst. Now, in the Bible, over and over and over again, thirst is used to describe our deepest longings, not just for healing and renewal, but for God himself. But for God himself now you know you and i have probably never experienced what it's like to die of thirst i've heard it described as a thousand daggers on the inside think about this if that's how painful it is to die of physical thirst can you imagine what it must be like to experience to die from spiritual thirst you know jesus christ is the eternal son of god from all eternity he reigned on the throne of heaven and yet When he came to earth, that means that Jesus Christ never experienced a moment when he wasn't in perfect intimate union with God the Father. He may have been physically thirsty in his life, but he was never spiritually thirsty. That is, until he got to the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ embraced and absorbed the infinite rapacious daggers of cosmic spiritual thirst for us so that we could drink from the healing, renewing fountain of the presence of God for the rest of our lives friends, you know what Jesus did on the cross? Jesus Christ, he resolved the tension. And he did it not just by being tugged on like a rope, but by being pulled and and ripped apart in the same way that heaven and earth was ripped apart by our sin. And, And that means that when Jesus Christ was on the cross, he didn't just thirst. Through his thirst, he conquered. Jesus Christ conquered all sin He conquered all tears, all death, all mourning and crying and pain. He conquered all evil, all suffering, all injustice. Jesus Christ conquered all of that through his suffering and weakness and defeat and death on the cross. You know, still by far one of the most moving uh, pictures I've ever seen of what this means is from the movie The Passion of the Christ. Towards the end of the movie, Jesus is carrying his cross through the city outside to where he's going to be crucified His face is beaten and bloodied so badly you can't even recognize him. He's been whipped and flogged to within an inch of his life, and so at this point he's so weak and and probably already half dead from loss of blood that at one point he just tumbles forward, falls face down, and then the cross just thuds on top of him, pinning him to the ground. And when that happens, his mother, Mary, is around the corner uh, close by in the city, and she can hear the commotion of the crowd jeering and mocking Jesus as he falls to the ground. And so she goes running to meet him, and when she sees Jesus fallen down with the cross laying on top of him like that, it, immediately she goes to a flashback of when Jesus was just a little child running through the village, but he fell down, and as any good mother would do, she instinctively runs to pick him up, draw him close to herself and she says to him, I'm here. I'm here. And so here he is, a grown man, but now he's on his way to his death. He's not a little child stumbling on a village path. And so she runs up to him and like any good mother, again, she wants to go to comfort her son to embrace him and say, I'm here. So she works her way through the crowd, through the soldiers that are kicking and beating and whipping him and spitting on him. And as she gets to him, she says to Jesus, I am here. But Jesus, his face bloodied into a pulp, his eyes puffy and half shut from all the fist blows, he reaches out, puts his hand on her face, and he says to her, See, Mother, I make all things new. And then he picks up his cross, and he goes walking forward to meet his death, to conquer all suffering and death by dying on a cross. Dear friends, don't you know that Jesus Christ Is the water that you thirst for. He is the healing that you long for. Jesus is the renewal that you were made for. He's all of that for you. And that means for us that to be conquerors, when the the Bible calls us conquerors, that means that that our suffering and defeat and struggles, it's not some tragic detour. To to follow Jesus, um, to be a conqueror means to follow Jesus on the way of cross. The way of the cross. That means that suffering and defeat is not a tragic detour. It's the main road. That means that that as we follow Jesus in this world, we follow him in our suffering and our struggles. That means that our tears are never defeat. It means that our pain is never wasted. It means that our grief is never futile. It means that our suffering and our struggles are never the end of the story That just as Jesus used the suffering and defeat of the cross to make all things new, in the same way he uses all the sufferings and the struggles in our lives to renew us in his own image. You see, the the new creation is already here, but it is not yet completed. So as we walk through this world in the midst of this tension, in the midst of a world in which things are always falling apart, including us, it means that, that, that we can have meaning and hope in our lives, even in the midst of our suffering and our struggles, because Jesus Christ makes all things new. And if you are seeing him, if you follow him, that means that we can follow him in the midst of the struggle, that we can sing, that we can praise him, and that we can rejoice in that day by day, we are being made into something beautiful because we see the face of the one who makes all things new. Let's pray. Holy Father, we praise you that you are indeed the one who makes all things new. And I pray this morning for all who are struggling in the midst of the tension of being thirsty conquerors in this world. Father, uh, whether we're following Jesus or whether we're just beginning to explore what it means to, to have faith in Christ, Father, for anybody listening in this morning, we all know what it's like to live in a world where everything is falling apart. And so I pray for us all this morning, for those of us who are following Jesus, that we would find fresh strength through our Savior who thirsted for us on the cross so that we could find victory in following him. We, I pray this morning for those who are exploring faith. I pray for those who are, who are maybe struggling in the midst of not feeling like they have any faith in anything at all. Father, I pray that you would meet every single person this morning right where they're at, and that you would begin even now to show them the face of the one who makes all things new, and that you would bring your healing and your renewal into their lives. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.